0: You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Lisa Kron. She is the author of the new book, Story or Die, How to Use Brain Science to Engage, Persuade, and change minds in business and in life. Lisa has worked as a literary agent, a television producer, a consultant for Warner Brothers and the William Morris Agency, and she currently advises writers, nonprofits, educators, and journalists about the art and craft of telling an incredible story. While her first two books were really geared towards people who are professional storytellers, her current book is for everybody who wants to persuade and influence people and she breaks down the brain science showing that the best way to convince somebody to adopt a new belief or to change their behavior in some way is through the awesome power of story. Lisa reveals that facts simply do not work and in order to get someone to change, we need to use emotion and we need to use the power of story. How do we do that? That's the topic of today's episode. We're going to be talking about why parents have so much trouble convincing teenagers of anything and what specifically you can do and say to have more influence. We're going to teach you how to bring your teenager to an aha moment where they realize the change they need to make without you even having to tell them. Really looking forward to dive into all that and more. Lisa, thank you so much for coming on the show today. So talk to me a little bit about what inspired this book. This is your third book you said. The previous one was Wired for Story. This one is Story or Die. So you have written previous books about story. So what made you then think we needed another book on it? And what was the inspiration for this one?
1: Okay, two things. I mean, one is this one is for a really different audience. Okay, The first two books were for writers. And it was really, if you wanted to write a novel or a memoir Mm. or personal effort, anything, this is what we're wired for. And the truth is what we're wired to, to respond to in- any kind of a story, whether a novel or just a headline, is how is this going to affect me given my agenda? Is it going to help me or is it going to hurt me? And we come to absolutely everything wired to ask that question. So while the first two books were for writers and people who were trying to write a novel that was going to pull a reader in and get that Vulcan mind meld between the reader and the protagonist, because literally when we're lost in a story, we are outside of reality. (laughs) We have got into the reality of the story literally. It's traveling the same neural pathways as it would if it was actually happening to us. Mm -hmm. So my goal was to help writers do that. But for me, diving into all of this and kind of seeing what it was that pulled us in Really coincided with a boom in neuroscience, and it went from this is my theory about what we're responding to. No, no, this is brain science. Mm. <laughs> this is, in fact, what we're responding to. And again, not just in stories, but but in life. So the first two books were for the writing world because, in my humble opinion, as I am very fond of saying, I think everything that's taught about writing is not only wrong but diametrically opposed to what's. To, but actually. <laughs> Is right, 100%, as I'm fond of saying, if the writing world meaning the world that gives advice were a person, I would punch it in the nose and go to jail happily. <laughs> but We are affected by stories every minute of every day, whether we know it or not, and mostly we don't know it, and that's kind of terrifying. So with this book, it goes to a completely different audience. In other words, it flipped it and went to, we are wired for story, therefore, when you are trying to communicate anything to anyone, to engage anyone, to persuade anyone of anything, to change anybody's mind about anything, there's only really one way to do it, and that is through story, because I think at this particular juncture in our, you know, human kind of world out there, I think we've, none of us, the one thing we can all agree on, you know, regardless which side of the divide we're on, is that when we're trying to convince anyone or engage anyone or change anyone's mind whether it's our significant other or crazy uncle ernie or you know our teenage son or daughter giving them the facts doesn't work <laughs>
0: <laughs> it really doesn't
1: really often you know facts that we give and we're hoping it's going to inform it instead it inflames mm. and does the exact opposite so yeah. I, mean, I had two goals with this book one was to really help people understand what it is that does engage us. And then to step by step is kind of what I go, go through in the book to really dive into okay, whose mind are you trying to change? Whether it's, you know, something you're trying to sell or a, you want somebody to vote for someone or to support your cause or to get your teenage kid not to text and drive. It's really to dive into and be able to really understand and empathize with them understand what it is you're trying to get them to do understand in their point of view not from yours but from their point of view why they don't want to do what you want them to do why aren't they doing it why are they doing what it is they're already doing that you definitely think they should not be doing why does it matter to them not you But them and that is a really hard thing to do again as I'm fond of saying not because we're stubborn not because we're self-centered but literally because of how we're wired we're Mm -hmm. wired to see the world not as it is but as we are so it's the ability to step out and and something that I think again we're short of these days not because it's our fault I mean the whole point of everything I'm writing is it's not our fault we're not doing it on purpose we're not jerks we're not self-centered but it has to do with how we're wired. And right now I think we're short on empathy and you can't change someone's mind about anything until you can empathize with why they're not doing what it is you want them to do. Mm. People don't listen until they feel heard.
0: So I think a lot of this stuff in this book really resonates with what we talk about here, uh, talking to teens, how to discuss difficult topics with teenagers. Because as you point out, a lot of times uh, sharing the facts does not seem to work when you're trying to you know convince your teenager not to vape telling them the facts about vaping doesn't necessarily lead them to make any different decisions uh when they're um being peer pressured to vape or um at school and so um i think what's really interesting to me is uh what can we do to sort of uh start to steer them in different directions and have influence and facts don't seem to do it you point out that there are four different types of facts neutral facts warning facts validating facts and conflicting facts um why do you spend time on this in your book? What do you think is important to know about the different types of facts?
1: I think, I mean, the reason it's important to understand the different types of facts is to understand the overall point, which is that facts don't work. I mean, when you give someone a fact, you assume that that fact is going to have the same meaning for them that it does for you. We we because we read our meaning into everything. We don't think of it as this is what I read into the fact and this is what someone else might read into it. We just think, well, this yeah. is what the fact says. And so, you know, validating fact would be a fact that you know that we're listening to, and we go, yeah, that I completely believe that. And that means mm. that not only do we have a context to give meaning to that fact, but we're giving out we're giving that meaning our own fact. To someone else, it might have a completely different meaning. When you give someone a conflicting fact, something that goes to the opposite of what they believe, at that point, it's really interesting what happens because we tend to think people are stubborn. They're not listening. What's wrong with them? And Literally, what happens is it comes across biologically as a personal attack because the way that we're wired, once we believe something to be true, it becomes part of our, our self-identity. And more than that, it becomes part of our self-identity in terms of, and this is a word that has been villainized at the moment, and, and certainly there are, there, I can understand why it's made pejorative, which is, you know, tribally. You know, in other words, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're attacking my self-identity and my identity to my tribe. But the truth is, that's what we're wired for we're wired to belong to a tribe meaning a group of people who who if we believe the same thing and work together they are going to keep us safe about hundred thousand years ago when our brain had its last big growth spurt and and what you're probably taught what most of us were were taught was that that was when you know our brain got big so that we would have the ability to think analytically and that that is what happened Ah, right what social scientists and evolutionary biologists will tell us now is that wasn't why we needed to learn to do that thing that they've been telling us to do since kindergarten, which is we needed to learn to work well with others. And at that Get point,
0: with people. Yeah. Yeah,
1: the need to belong to a group is as hardwired in our biology and our, in our neural wiring, as is our need for food, air, and water. We are all people who need people, and people go, I'm a lone wolf. I always think, okay, you understand that wolves travel in packs.
0: And if you, if
1: you look up the definition of a, of, a, of a lone wolf in the wolf community, that is a wolf that has been ostracized from the pack and is left to die. Ooh. So that tribal identity is something that is in our DNA. It is there. So when you turn around and you ask your kid not to, you know, not to vape, and you're going to explain how you know, I mean, I remember thinking this when baby came out, it's like they're going, Well, you know, we there's no real downside. It's like they haven't done the research yet,
0: <laughs> yeah, right.
1: Oh, all of this, of course, it does lead to the gathering, and who knows what you're ingesting in your love but you start to give that in, in no way are you touching on
0: that's that reason
1: why they're doing it, right. and what happens when you come up to anyone, think about this. Think about this for parents of teens. Like if your significant other comes up to you and says, we have to talk. <laughs> the first thing you wanna say back is yeah, okay, but not now. Because when you said we have to talk, you telegraphed to me that you're gonna tell me something I don't wanna hear. It's not gonna be good. So- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So what I'm doing right now is I am now getting all of the ammunition of all the things I don't like about you. So when you tell me why I shouldn't do this, I'm gonna start lobbying things at you. I mean, in other words, yeah, you've completely shut down. Yeah. And that's what happens. I mean, I, I think something that we've all heard of, you know, for the past several years is that notion of confirmation bias, which mm-hmm. is, you know, when we believe something, we literally either don't hear or set up just to argue with anything that that goes in the other direction. So, you know, when you when you sit your, your kid down to say, don't text and drive or don't vape, the minute they know you're gonna tell them to do something, up comes this defensive, I mean, literally it lands in your brain as, as a personal attack. There was a really interesting study. And what this guy did was he wired them up, however you get wired up for, you know, fMRI, and yeah. he just literally, he knew what their political beliefs were, and he just read them small, very short counter arguments. And as opposed to the thinking part of the brain coming up and going, let me take that in, oh, let me figure that out, do they have analyze a Analyze
0: that and see if it has right. a valid point. Yeah.
1: It, it landed as a physical attack. I mean, well, it landed uh, as, if, as if the guy had said, put up your dupes that's what happens when you try to tell someone what to do again whether it's a teen or whether it's your significant other or your boss or you know crazy uncle ernie it, it just comes across like but here's the thing to think of and watch it in your own life you do the same thing we all do it it's yeah. not just them it's us too which is why when we give them the facts we think they're going to read the exact same meaning into it and go mm. oh i don't this is what you mean and of course they're not going to, because when you're asking somebody to give something up to change it anyway, you're inherently asking them to give something up and that something you're asking them to give up has meaning to them. And right. if you're ignoring what that meaning is, why should they pay attention to you? That's why they don't.
0: There's a great quote in your book from the researcher who did that study, Jonas T. Kaplan. And it says, the brain's primary responsibility is to take care of the body, to protect the body. The psychological self is the brain's extension of that. When our self feels attacked, our brain is going to bring to bear the same defenses that it has for protecting the body. So it literally in the brain is the same thing. When you're attacking someone's beliefs, um, it activates the same brain regions as it would if you were attacking them physically.
1: Yeah, just think about in your own life, again, whichever side you're on. And if Crazy Uncle Ernie sits down and starts to tell you why you're, you know, completely wrong, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, think of that feeling. I think at this moment we're all, all of us, no matter again what side we're on, we're very familiar with that feeling of just rage that yeah. starts to come up. It's the same thing when someone says, here's why you shouldn't vape, or here's why you shouldn't, you know, text and drive. Because again, you know, as with the vaping or texting and driving, you're giving them all of that, and they're thinking, "Yeah, but I'm okay," you know. For mm. texting, don't text and drive; it's dangerous. And they're going, I'm proof, it's not because I'm still here." I do it all the so- time, and
0: so do all my friends, and we're fine. So exactly. So another interesting thing from your book is this idea of emotion you talk about how, you know, getting people to remember things is hard. (laughs) Uh, One easy way to really enhance it is to link memories with emotions. You say emotional memories are hard to forget. The stronger the emotion, the more resilient the memory. Absolutely. This is a neuroscientist. Elizabeth Phelps points out memories of emotional events have a persistence and vividness. Other memories seem to lack. So does that mean if we're trying to get our kid to remember something, we need to get them super emotional and hyped up before we tell them? Or what's the practical lesson that we can learn about emotions and memories? Okay,
1: let's talk about emotion first, because emotion is something that is one of the most misunderstood functions of of who we are and how we're wired i, I purposely misunderstood okay. i think society misunderstands it because we're taught you know to make any decision right here's how you make a decision you want to marshal all the facts all the,
0: all the ah, data right. you want to
1: analyze it dispassionately in the cold light of objective reason get rid
0: of the emotion right get, just keep emotional right. pros and cons right. list. Yeah.
1: And, you know, and because if, if you let emotion in, it's going to cloud your judgment and you're going to make, you know, a, a decision, you're going to ruin the morning. And, you yeah. know, that's a great model. It makes us feel. So,
0: yeah, sounds good. It makes us right. feel
1: so secure. You know, how many times have we been told and do we tell our kids? It's our ability to think rationally that makes us the master of our own ship. It's a great model.
0: Yeah. Or I may, let my emotion get the better of me. I made the wrong decision in the heat of the moment. Exactly. Like, It is
1: 100% not true. We do not make decisions based on a rational analysis of the situation. We make decisions based on how that rational analysis makes us feel. We make every single decision we ever make based on emotion. The problem is we have been taught to think of emotion as emotional you can't see me but I'm doing air quotes which yeah. is a very narrow band or pitch of emotion that is over the top and sure we've all made that kind of a decision that we you know we'll ruin the morning not, not that we would admit it to anybody but we do but that is not what emotion is emotion is something that we feel every minute of every day nothing ever happens to us or that we think about or that we see that is not accompanied by a chorus of emotion it's it's literally a chemical reaction that our brilliant brain and nervous system translates from feeling into emotion that lets us know what things mean to us when people go calm down you're so over emotional get calm i always want to go dude are you aware of the fact that calm is an emotion? <laughs> emotion. If You couldn't feel emotion. You couldn't make a single rational decision. Emotion is the decider. If you couldn't feel emotion, everything would be six of one, half a dozen of the other. You would never be able to yeah. make a decision. The reason we have emotion and the reason we remember memories with emotion is because our brain is, I literally just finished reading a book for this new book that I wrote called Your Brain is a Time Machine, and based by a neuroscientist out here in LA, and basically what he's writing about, and this is in all the neuroscientific literature as well, is that the real purpose of our brain is to record past memories in order to predict the future. And the memories that we record, I mean, people tend to think that our memory is like a video camera, you know, like if it happened, remember right.
0: it. And
1: that a hundred, percent, I mean, if that was true, we would never lose our keys. Or
0: <laughs>
1: I mean, that just 100% right. is not true. What we remember are things that our brain has decided are going to matter to us, meaning you know, yeah. when something happens that matters, emotion comes up, we feel why it's important, you know, good or bad. And then, you know, your amygdala lights up, your limbic system comes on board, and it gives the memory, you know, uh, an evergreen backstage pass to I need to remember this because in the future, this is gonna come in handy. That that is how we survive, it's what makes us adaptable. You know, to to adapt to things like, we're all adapting now to things that we never thought we could adapt to, and yet here we are. Because we are adaptable, and past memories are what we use to predict the future. Every minute of every day, that's what you're doing. Every situation you go in, you're calling on past memories in order to figure out, is this safe or isn't it? Is this gonna get me what I want in this situation, or isn't it mm. And so when you tell someone something what, I mean the, the other two kinds of you know facts are facts if you give someone a fact and they have no context for it in other words, they can't ever see how it would ever affect them um, climate change is a big example of that you know scientists will give all of this data and who understands what right. that is going to mean boots on the ground for us in 50 years I, I, we don't even, we can't even interpret it let alone to see how that very specific you know, uh, a consequence would very specifically affect us. And those facts just go over our heads. We can't even grab onto them.
0: You hear that, like I think you say, if you hear the basic takeaway, is it's going to get eight degrees hotter in the next hundred years. Right. Say, yeah. Oh. I mean, it doesn't sound so bad, actually. No. Look at, you know, another eight degrees. I mean, we get it up into the 80s. Actually, that wouldn't be too bad. I don't like
1: sweaters. You? That sounds good.
0: <laughs> <Yeah,
1: laughs> so, I'm right. um, yeah, but, but I mean, but that's the point. When we give a fact, in fact, scientists have a really hard time with this because they do, they just wanna give facts and they don't wanna yeah. personify it and they don't wanna make statements. And they literally, I mean, all people do, we give a fact and we assume other people know exactly what we mean. We assume that, that not only do they know exactly what we mean and what it means to us, it's gonna mean the same thing to them. Exactly. We assume right. that they're gonna understand, therefore what we want them to do as a result. So we didn't even have to say that, all they've gotta do is get the fact. And, you know, most of the time our mind is wandering and we're nodding and smiling. And what we're really thinking is, was that dentist appointment Tuesday or Thursday? You know, (laughs) we're not paying attention because, I mean, that is the point. Our brains are there. We're wired to only pay attention to things that do matter to us, meaning things that happen when our expectations are broken. That's what we're always on the lookout for. So, you know, if you bore us, if you give us something and expect us to understand what you want and we have no way of knowing, even if we try to pay attention, you know, we're still thinking, I'm hungry. I wonder how much longer till lunch. It's just, you know, things that actually matter to
0: us. So, you point out in here that one of the best ways to add emotion and create a powerful story is to admit mistakes that's what grabs people allows them to instantly identify and empathize with you so how does that work and is that something that parents should do when they're trying to uh impart information to a teenager
1: yes a hundred percent i mean this is true think about it in your own life it's funny in the writing world you know anybody who knows anything about the writing world here, people always go is the character likable and that is true mm, the yeah. real world people go likable and we tend to think that to make ourselves feel strong and to make ourselves feel like we know what we're doing we need to project this notion that we are likable and we are we, we we are completely competent and that means We never make mistakes.
0: We don't mess anything up. Yeah,
1: exactly. What it means is is that we have never done anything that in polite society would be deemed uh uh-oh. And the truth is, we all know (laughs) that that is impossible. We all know (laughs) that we've made mistakes. So when someone starts to talk about something as if they've never made a mistake, first of all, we don't believe them. We don't believe them. We find them inauthentic. Nobody's that perfect to be likable means to be relatable. We have to be able to relate to you. And what that means, because that's another big generic term, story's always in the specific, what does relatable mean? It means vulnerable. It means opening Mm. up and showing where you made a mistake, where you did something, maybe even similar to what this kid did, because stories, here's what a story is literally about. Again, whether it's a, you know, one sentence or a tweet or a, you know, or, or, or war and peace, you know, story is about how something, an, an unavoidable external problem forces the protagonist, meaning you, if you're telling the story, to change an internal belief in order to solve that problem. Hmm. That's what a story. Story isn't about what happens on the outside. It isn't how suddenly you discovered, you know, that you could solve the problem by, you know, getting a screwdriver and you needed a Phillips instead of a, you know, a, a flathead or whatever. Story is about right. whatever that internal belief is that you had, what I like to call a misbelief that was keeping yeah. you from solving whatever that problem is. That's what stories are about, again, whether it's literature or whether we're telling a story. Now, if you're telling a story about yourself, since stories are literally, stories are how we solve a problem internally, how we change an internal belief in order to solve an external problem. That is what the story is. So if you're telling a story and you yourself aren't vulnerable, meaning there's something that you didn't know, there's something that you believed that wasn't true, then you have no story. You just have a bunch of things that happen, which is, again, a mistake that writers make and a mistake that people make when they tell stories. Because, I mean, being vulnerable means you're inviting someone in. I mean, story really is, I like to say, Uh the difference between what we say out loud and what we're really thinking when we say it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think that's something, again, no matter which side you were on with this, you know, with the impeachment that just went on, it's like, boy, there were so many people I thought, boy, I wish I knew what they were really thinking. As
0: opposed
1: to, (laughs) what are they thinking? That's what we want to know because that's what what Mm -hmm. makes us vulnerable. We are all afraid to say what we really believe because if we did, people could make fun of us for it. People could think we were stupid or uninformed or not like us. So we learn in elementary school to close that down. Stories are about opening that up and having the courage to be vulnerable. And that's what pulls people in. I mean, I mean, that's, that is the heart and soul of a story and why often we don't get it right when we're, when we're telling people kind of what to do. Because the thing that you're the most afraid of telling your kid is probably the thing that's going to make them bond with you and really hear what you're saying because you have been through something similar. if you don't admit how hard it was and what it mattered to you and how you made the mistake, they're just not gonna believe you.
0: Hey, we're here with Lisa Kron talking about how to influence and persuade your teenager using the power of emotion, aha moments, and story. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show.
1: Asking anybody to change is a big ask. Anytime you're trying to convince anyone of anything, the goal is to make them feel like they've made this choice on their own. Give them agency. People don't have agency. They're just going to resent you. So it opens and it's very simple. There's a girl and she's at the beach and she's got her dog and she's like, playing catch with the dog and it's very clear how much she loves the dog so here's a situation we're now seeing um, the bond that she's got with this dog and now i can't remember she looks at her watch but it's getting late and she gets into the car and the dog is sitting on the front seat so now she's going to be driving and she's the one who is responsible for her dog and it's very clear that she deeply loves her dog and so you know she starts the car and as she's like i think putting it into drive she does that thing whether we're teenagers or adults, I think we all tend to do, which is as her hand comes back, she picks up the phone, she sees a text, she's laughing and smiling, she texts back, You know, she's driving, another ding, she texts back. So now we're seeing the problem. We're seeing her do the thing Mm. that's a problem in our hearts and our throat because she's driving and texting. So we know what matters to her, it's the dog. We understand that she's doing something without shaming her That's wrong. Do we stop and tell her that's a wrong thing to do? Or don't you do that? Does she get into a horrible? No, she's driving. And the dog, whose name is Patrick, is just sitting in the passenger seat looking at her. She's texting and he's looking at her and she's texting. And then he doesn't, he doesn't even shame her. He doesn't bark. Uh, He doesn't put his paw on her. He just kind of goes, I don't know if I can make this sound. It's like, like just a little breath comes out that you can hear (laughs) and suddenly she looks up she looks at him he she kind of holds the gaze and then and this is really the point she herself when you know sometimes i'll call it you know a misbelief truth realization transformation she sees the truth here she decides it on her own she looks at the dog she's now coming you know to a stop sign she looks at her phone She leans over, she puts it in the glove box, and she drives Mm -hmm. off. And the beauty of that is that she made the choice on
0: her own. Nobody said, do this want to hear the full interview sign up for a subscription today you get unlimited access to all the interviews i've conducted it's completely affordable and your subscription helps support the work we do here at talking to teens thanks for listening i'll see you next time